couple of years ago, like about three years ago, I can remember driving into Dallas from where we lived in Texarkana, and I would see some big billboards along the highway, and it said, Get Ready, It's Coming. And it had a date down there. It had May 21st, 2011. Anybody remember seeing those billboards besides me? I saw a few of them scattered through the Metroplex. Get ready, it's coming. Well, let me tell you what it was. In spring of 2011, a Christian broadcaster announced the end of the world would take place on May the 21st, 2011. Now, this was not some country radio preacher that was making these claims. His name is Harold Camping. And Camping had built a pretty sizable ministry called Family Radio. It was a huge network of stations spanning the globe with hundreds of thousands of listeners, with more than $100 million in assets and an eight-figure revenue stream. Well, Camping, around this time, began pouring hundreds of thousands of dollars into his end-of-the-world campaign so that all people would have a chance to repent before May the 11th, 2011. And he encouraged his followers to do the same. And many people actually quit their jobs. Uh, they poured their life savings into publishing newsletters in their local communities. They also bought billboards scattered around our country. And when all was said and done, tens of millions of dollars went into that end of times campaign. But since this is what, July the 20th, 2014, we know that May 21st came and went and there was no rapture. It was just an ordinary day that most of you didn't remember at all. Now, what most people don't know is that this was not the first time Harold Camping got it wrong. Back in the 1990s, something similar happened. Camping wrote a book claiming that Jesus would come again somewhere between September the 15th and September the 27th in 1994. Y'all remember where you were 10 years ago? I think we were back yet at Lord of Life in La Fox, Illinois. Well, he sold thousands of these books, um, and so the predictions proved to be false. But what did he do when that was wrong? Well, he just changed the date. And he moved it back a few years, and when that day didn't come, he did it again and again and again. But finally, right before he died in 2013, he publicly apologized on his website for all of his failed predictions. Now, Harold Camping is not the first guy ever to do that. Maybe you remember the guy by the name of Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey used to sell a ton of books. His most popular one I remember reading back in the 70s was The Late Great Planet Earth. Then he wrote a book called The Terminal Generation and one in the 1980s called Countdown to Armageddon. And in the 1990s, he actually was so bold to say that Christians could not count on being alive after the year 2000. We're still here. Now, the fact is that books on the second coming were a rather profitable genre of Christian literature back then, and sad to say it still is somewhat popular depending on which bookstores you frequent. Even though they have a kind of a limited shelf life, 
you know, when you predict that Jesus is coming in 1994, that book is probably not going to sell in 1995. But it can't stop publishers, and it doesn't stop publishers from cashing in when they can. And so all through history, prophets have tried to predict the date of Christ's return, and all of them, without fail, have been absolutely, positively dead wrong. Now, some of these people are rather uh, sincere in their convictions. Some of them are just sincerely wrong. Uh, others are transparently self-serving money grubbers uh, who are using this to make a few extra dollars. Now, for this reason, and this we're going to get into today in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the Bible tells us clearly that even though there will be signs in the final days, we should not spend all of our time chasing wild notions about rapture and the apocalypse, because if you do, more than likely, you're going to get it wrong. Now, sadly, end-time fanatics have become so obsessed, it seems, in studying the last days, that they never quite get around to living the daily Christian life. I mean, I always love what Martin Luther said when they asked him one time, what would you do if you knew that tomorrow the world would end? And Luther said... I'd plant a tree. I mean, he was ready for whenever it was coming. See, another problem is when you're always chasing this, you know, people like this are, are kind of pretty easy prey to people like Harold Camping. And Paul warned us against this in today's text. If you've got your Bibles, you might want to take a look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2. That's what we're going to be at. Now, last week when we went through chapter 1, we talked about when life makes you a sugar cookie. And if you remember being a sugar cookie... It was not a good thing. This is a Navy SEAL thing when you, in full uniform, have to run into the ocean, get all wet, roll around on the ground, and get sand all over in every spot you can imagine. Well, it's, it's unfair. And last week I told you that life is unfair, but if you got this bulletproof faith, you learn to look past today to what's on the way. Uh, and more than that, you learn to live today as if all of God's promises had already come your way. Now, today we're going to look at chapter 2, and we're going to talk about how to keep your head while everybody else around you seems to be losing theirs. Uh, I think Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem to that effect. We're going to talk about how to practice discernment as Christians when you hear wild ideas coming from all different places, and sad to say, even from Christian publications. Now, when I prepared this message for the day, I looked at a number of commentators, and one of them I always kind of like to look at is, is William Barclay. And Barclay's commentary said this about chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians. He said, it is one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament. Well, at that point, I almost felt like shutting my Bible and saying, what else could I preach on this week? Uh, but I, I'm going to deal with it anyway. And the reason it's difficult is because Paul uses some terms and some references. He references certain ideas that would have been common knowledge in the first century that are a little bit foreign to us today. For example, we're going to go past the, the man of lawlessness. Now, in this chapter, Paul is going to talk about a sequence of events that will occur leading up to the second coming. And I'm going to tell you right now that the emphasis of today's message will not be on this sequence of events because there is an overriding principle, I think, in this chapter that I want us to focus on instead. Now, if you've got questions about the man of lawlessness or anything else in this chapter, 
that you're bugged about during the course of this week, uh, you can just email Quentin and he'll answer them for you. Well, actually, if you ever have questions about anything, don't be afraid to just drop me a note. Send it to my email address or whatever. Now, let's go back to the first century when Paul was writing this letter. This is probably the second oldest book in the New Testament. Christians believe that the return of Jesus was just around the corner. It was imminent. That it would happen in their lifetime. Because of this, there was a lot of misinformation that was kind of going around, and some opportunistic or some unscrupulous teachers were exploiting people's fears and confusion by claiming that the return of Jesus had already taken place. In fact, there appears to have been a letter that was circulated claiming to have been written by St. Paul saying that Jesus had already come back. And now Paul writes this to kind of set the record straight. So in 2 Thessalonians, he talks about the sequence of events that must take place leading to the second coming. But he says, folks, use your heads. Think about this when it comes to discerning the end times. He also says, don't use the second coming as an excuse not to lead a productive life. Now, the generation you and I uh, live in has often been called the information age or the technology age. I still get a kick out of when I go to uh, church with my, where my son and his wife go when it comes time for the sermon to glance around and see very few Bibles, but to see a lot of iPhones and a lot of iPads that have all got the text right in front of them. You know, we are just tech savvy. And yet, uh, even though we might call it the information age, I sometimes think we should call it the misinformation age. Because there's a lot of nonsense out there that's floating around. And if your head isn't screwed on straight, uh, you're going to find yourself believing a lot of stuff that later on you're going to find out isn't true. So today I want to give you three do's and three don'ts for keeping your head when you get kind of mixed up in this wild hysteria. And the first of these is this. Don't be gullible. Don't be gullible. Don't, don't get suckered in for everything that comes along the way. But what you should do is this. Check everything before you believe everything. I don't care what it is. Even in the Christian faith, Paul applauded people who were Bereans who went home, got their Bibles out to check and see with what the pastor said was true. They weren't doing that so they could find a way to railroad him out of the church. They just wanted to confirm it in their own hearts. Now, when some of the believers heard that Jesus had already come back and was living somewhere in the Middle East, They bought into this. They wanted to know where Jesus was. Uh, Should they quit their jobs? Should they go hunt Jesus down and and find out what he wanted? But take a look at what Paul says to them. I mean, in effect, he says, it's not so quick, not so fast. But here in the first three verses of our text, he says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, Or letter, supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Now what Paul is telling his Christian congregation is simply this. Don't believe everything you hear. Before you believe it, 
Check it out with what you know to be true. Now, for the Christian, the place you ought to check it out is in the check it out book called the Bible. Is it in there? What does it say? Now, you, you see, Paul had already taught them about the second coming and all the events that have to take place before. And all now he's saying is weigh what you've heard against what you already know. Now, I realize I could spend the rest of my time this morning giving you examples of, I'm being kind when I say gullible people, stupid people, I don't know, I don't know what word to even use it, but people who just believe everything they see and hear, particularly on the internet, and then spread it around like wildfire. And the ones that just gall me the most, I apologize for saying this, are Christians. Christians who pass around some of the dumbest stuff on Facebook and the internet but have never bothered to check out the truth behind it. I'm going to give you a classic example. Back in the 1990s, there was a report going around that the president of Procter & Gamble had gone on um, a television show to announce his company's allegiance to Satan and that his company had donated a large portion of his profits to Satan's cause. And they trotted out this proof. And guess what? Christians jumped on this like white on rice. I mean, the proof was found in the Procter & Gamble's Man in the Moon logo, which they claimed had hidden signals referencing the mark of the beast. I mean, you can find an inverted 666 in his beard. Wow. Really? Now, the main problem... With this rumor bought into by hundreds of thousands of Christians is this was all made up. It was 100 percent bogus. But people still bought into it hook, line and sinker. I would say about once every month or so, I get an email announcing to me that Madeline Murray O'Hare has filed another lawsuit to take Christian radio off the radio and off of television. And I'm like, that lady's been dead for 30 years, for heaven's sakes. That, that has never been filed. Check it out. That's all I'm saying. Now, even today, all you have to do is open up your news feed on Facebook to see a great deal of misinformation. It amazes me how some people who are normally so sane will believe some of the craziest, alarmist claims and pass it on to all of their friends. Now, what this does, it creates an environment of fear. It creates an environment of panic. You know, we even do these silly things in our, in, in our churches. When I left the church, the rumor began that Nancy and I were divorced and that I was fired from my next job. You know, and some of the people are like, really? Wow, oh man, I knew it would probably happen sooner or later. <laughs> they even published a directory that listed only her name in it. It's like, how dumb can you be and still breathe? <laughs> now, panic and fear, I don't care whether it's outside the church or inside the church, is not conducive to living a life of faith. This is what Paul said to his young friend Timothy. I love this passage from the old King James. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. This is what Paul is saying, friends. Don't believe everything you hear. When you hear something that is too good to be true or too bad to be true, check it out. Do research. 
Weigh what you hear against what you know to be true. Weigh it against the word of God. Check everything before you believe anything. Here's the second thing I think this text says, more, more important. Don't forget how the story ends. That's the don't. Don't forget how the story ends, but do. Do remember who is in control. Now, Paul admits there are going to be some tough days ahead for this little fledgling Christian church. And so in verse 8, he says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Now, what's Paul doing in this verse? Well, very simply, he's, t- he's reminding his readers, he's reminding of us how the story actually ends. Now, again, there are many believers in this world, maybe some of them here today, pastors also, who love to talk about how bad the world is today and how bad it's going to be in the future. I mean, you hear them say, oh, man, ain't it awful? I mean, this ain't what it used to be in the good old days. Uh, People used to look out for one another, but not anymore. I mean, people used to be kind to each other, but not anymore. I mean, it used to be that a man could earn a good wage from honest work, but not anymore. It used to be that the kids respected their elders, but not anymore. It used to be that everyone went to church on Sunday, but not anymore. And it goes on and on and on. Now, I think I kind of halfway figured this out, because I'm kind of guilty of this too on occasion. These people have an idealized view of the past. I can remember being down in the basement one day when my grandma was doing wash, and my grandma was talking about the good old days. And I said, mean before you had this washing machine, you could go slop the clothes on a rock down by the creek? <laughs> well, she smacked me because she didn't want to go that far back. <laughs> oh, why don't we have church like the good old days? You want to go all the way back to the days of Jesus? Uh, yeah. Okay, all you folks stand up and stay standing. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to talk until I feel like I'm done. That's the way church was done in the days of... Oh, no, Pastor, we only want to go back to 1950s to the Red Hymnal. <laughs> yeah. Now, if they don't have an idealized view of the past, they've got kind of a pessimistic view of the present. You know, and they have kind of a fatalistic view of the future. And it's hard to believe that these people actually do still believe in an all-powerful God who, according to my Bible, is still actively working to redeem this world. And that's the very thing that you and I need to remember. We must keep this idea foremost in our minds. God is in control. God is in control. Don't forget how this story eventually ends. In this life, there will be trouble. Count on it. Take it to the bank. You will face hard times. Count on it. You will be treated unfairly in this life. You may even be persecuted for your faith, but that is not where your story or the story actually ends. Let me give you some proof. This is Jesus talking. In this world, you shall have tribulation. But then he says, but be of good cheer. Smile. Because I have overcome this world. 
You know, I think it's kind of hard to preach a doom and gloom gospel and still be faithful to the scriptures. Because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that our suffering is only temporary, but our joy is going to be everlasting. The Bible says that in the last days, evil will reign for a season. That's that man of lawlessness. But it's only for a season. And then the kingdom of Satan is going to be destroyed so that God's kingdom can stand forever. That's how the story ends. Don't forget that. So the next time you're struggling in life, when you fall and you fail and you wonder if you'll ever get victory over a certain sin or whatever, don't forget how this story ends. Paul said in verse 14, he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the story ends. You know, when people take, uh, take advantage of you or manipulate you or, or use you or exploit you, don't forget how the story ends. Remember, there will come a time when it says the Lord will overthrow the lawless. And how it? it says with a breath of his mouth. That's all it's going to take. Out. And that's it's gone. He's going to destroy the works of evil by the splendor of his coming. Just by showing up, Jesus is going to destroy it. That's how the story ends. So no matter what things look like today or how far behind in the count you may be, no matter what the scoreboard says at this point, don't forget how it ends. God is in control. Now, you might be sitting there and saying, if God is in control... Explain to me then why my life is so difficult. I can answer that. Your life is difficult because life is difficult. And what else can I say? Life is difficult because life's difficult. It's the same way for everyone. The difference, however, is that those who are connected to God through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord are moving towards a victorious outcome. Now, what I'm saying, again, is if you want to develop a bulletproof faith, if you want to be able to keep your head on straight, keep in mind that this situation, whatever this situation may be, any difficult situation you may face in the days to come, isn't all there is in the meaning of life. This is not the end of the story. Your story will not end on a low note because why? God is in control. Now, here's the third thing. Don't let go of your lifeline. Don't let go of your lifeline. See what you do? Hold on tight to the empowering truth. Now, what is the truth? I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, Muslims and uh, Hindus are always searching for the truth. Muslims say we've been searching. There's a multi-road thing. We've never found it. Hindus say uh, truth is like... Uh, a butterfly, you chase after it, can't catch it. Jesus is over here. <clears throat> right here. I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, occasionally, the police will find a murder victim with a rather unique injury. I don't know if you know about this. It's a bullet hole in their hand. Now, why is that such a strange injury? Well, it's not so strange. You see, when somebody is pointing a gun at you, Preparing to pull the trigger, your automatic response is to throw up your hands. And you try to stop the bullet. Well, I don't think any of you got hands with that many calluses that are going to stop a bullet. 
But I have seen a lot of people who basically try to do that in their Christian life. They try to withstand the enemy's attacks with their own strength, with their own hands. And it never works. That's why Paul spends the last part here of 2 Thessalonians 2 encouraging believers to stay connected to their lifeline. He says, don't try to do it on your own. In verse 15, he says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we have passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Now, in the New Living Translation of this verse, it says, keep a strong grip on the teaching that we passed on to you. That word teaching can also be translated traditions, and in fact, many versions actually have traditions. But he's, he's not just talking about doctrinal truths. He's talking about the daily disciplines of life, spiritual di- uh, disciplines, the traditions of living out the Christian life. Now, let me tell you, that the best way to keep your head up about you in the midst of all craziness is stay as close as you possibly can to this, the Word of God. Keep it front and center in your life. Now, I can't even begin to tell you over the years how many times that I that I have encouraged people to develop a habit of a daily time alone with God. Just you, the Holy Spirit, and the Word. Now, you don't need to read the Bible from front to back every day. You don't even need to read an entire book every day. Uh, you could be my, my wife who read chapter 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians, driving to Mineral Wells. You can read just one verse And the Spirit may take you down a journey for the next half hour or more. Just let Him speak to you and reveal His truth to you. Let Him show you how to think and how to act and how to live. That's why Paul goes on here in verses 16 and 17, and he said, May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and by His grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. I don't know what that show is. I've seen it a couple of times on television where if you can't answer a question, you, you call a lifeline. That, who wants to be a millionaire or something like that? Well, I, I know that we all have lifelines. That Every once in a while we know that we can pick up our phone and we can call somebody and they'll help us out. But your real lifeline is spelled out right there in those verses. Our lifeline is Jesus. He's the source of our strength, the source of our encouragement. And the more time we spend in his presence, the more we seek to encounter him in his word, the stronger our faith actually becomes. We need to learn to seek what I would call the empowering truth. And the empowering truth is just the truth that comes from God's word that gives us strength. Now, there are many things in this world that you could say are true, but they are not empowering truths. Let me give you some examples. Life is difficult. That's the truth. But it's not all the truth, and it's not empowering truth. The empowering truth is that life is difficult, and this is the victory that overcomes our problems. It's called our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You will face trials and tribulation. That's the truth. But it's not all the truth, and it's certainly not empowering truth. The empowering truth is that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our tribulations, God is with us, giving us comfort and strength. There will be dark days ahead for everybody who's here today, and that's the truth. 
But it's not all the truth, and it certainly is not empowering truth. The empowering truth is, as the word says, we may weep for a moment, but joy will come in the morning. And followers of Jesus Christ that morning, someday, will laugh for eternity. So if you want to develop a faith that enables you to keep your head on straight in the midst of life's greatest challenges, don't let go of your lifeline. Don't let go of the empowering truth. There will always be people in this world who seek to market fear. There are people who seek to exploit confusion, who try to direct you, your attention away from what God is doing in your life today. They will tempt you to play the game of speculation about what may take place tomorrow or sometime in the future. But friends, don't take the bait. Don't get suckered in. Don't give in to fear. Don't believe everything you hear. Weigh what other people say against what you know to be true. Weigh what you hear against what you know the Word of God actually says. Don't forget how this story ends. And I've said it before. You know, I've actually read to the end. We win. Sorry. You can read find out the same thing. But we win in the end. Why? God is in control. But most of all, if you want to keep your head on straight when everything, everyone around you is losing theirs, hold on tight to the empowering truth. And the empowering truth is spelled J-E-S-U-S. May he grant it for his, for his sake. Amen.